The federal liberals took the wraps off their new cabinet following their minority election win in September. Justin Trudeau continued to aim for gender parity in cabinet despite losing four female MPs on election night. What will this cabinet accomplish? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. There's a bit of strategy to crafting a cabinet with a number of considerations to weigh. Regional representation, knocking off an incumbent, loyalty, and success. It's not an easy thing to do when you know some egos will be bruised. The purpose, though, is to create a team to accomplish your goals. I mean, there's a number of faces in new portfolios, and some that were head-scratchers. Our unpublished I vote question asks you, which cabinet minister do you feel will be the first to be shuffled out of their portfolio? Melanie Jolie in Foreign Affairs, Anita Anand in Defense, Stephen Guibo in Environment, Jean-Yves Duclos in Health, Patty Haidu in Indigenous Affairs, or other. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the bench strength of this cabinet and where it may succeed or fail. And starting us off, Nelson Wiseman is the Director of Canadian Studies as well as Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And Nelson, 39 members of this, this uh, cabinet. Does the size of the cabinet indicate big plans for a government? No, not necessarily. Size of the cabinet is usually a function of, as you suggested, stroking the number of egos and taking a number of factors into account. Brian Mulrooney had, I think, a cabinet of 40. And maybe Harper got to that point as well. Uh, actually, as the cabinets have gotten larger, the full cabinet beca has become less likely to meet. And the um, operations of cabinet are more and more being conducted in, in committees of cabinet, as well as in a central committee, often called the Priorities and Planning Committee of the uh, uh, usually chaired by the Prime Minister. So I don't think the uh, I think the cabinet is too large, and I think some of these portfolios I really wonder about. Uh, new ones were created, some were done away with. Like now we've got a a regional agency for the Pacific region. Why we need that, I'm not sure. Why we need these various regional agencies, I'm not sure. Once upon a time, we had a minister for regional development. Now we've got these agencies for Southern Ontario, Northern Ontario, uh, the Pacific, the West, the Atlantic, uh, Quebec, you know, what's next? On the other hand, it's interesting to see a portfolio that got dropped, which uh, I and I think many others couldn't figure out what its job was. And that was we had a minister responsible for middle class prosperity, which Trudeau kept beating that drum in 2015 and 2019. So what does it mean that the middle class is now prosperous and has arrived? You tell me. Yeah, good question. Good question. You know, when selecting a cabinet, you know, we talked about some considerations when it comes to selecting ministers, regional representation, geography, uh, possibly loyalty, and or if you happen to have knocked off uh, an incumbent. But uh, in your uh, ex experience, what kind of uh, considerations are taken into account here? You know, I think it varies. And, uh, you know, I don't know the relationship between the prime minister at, at a personal level and his cabinet ministers. I should say, in addition to region and gender, uh, in the last 30 years or so, certainly in the last 15, 20 years, uh, you've also got to take into account diversity. 
So you've got visible minorities in cabinets in a way that once upon a time, they just simply couldn't be in cabinet. For example, we never had a a Ukrainian cabinet minister until 1957. We never had a Jewish cabinet minister until 1969. Now, I don't think it would be considered acceptable not to have someone from a racialized minority in a cabinet. So you can see there are all kinds of factors that go into play, as well as, okay, you need regional representation, but who is it that got elected in that region? So often, if only one person got elected there, uh, you're stuck with that person, no matter how incompetent you might perceive them to be. Now, the other thing I would, if I may say about cabinet, is uh, I think much more significant than the cabinet selection are the selection of people around Trudeau in the prime minister's office. Because what, what has developed is that they are the eyes, ears, and nose of the government, of the prime minister. And you can be a cabinet minister. Once upon a time, you had easy access to the prime minister. Now you don't. Maybe two or three cabinet ministers do, but it's a very telling story that when Stefan Dion was a minister of foreign affairs, he and Trudeau were on the plane together one day and he tried to approach Trudeau and he was kept by Trudeau's guard from talking to him. I think they only had one conversation one-on-one. And the same thing happened under the Harper government. So uh, these are people that often aren't reported about, but they they are the guards for the prime minister. And we saw that in the SNC Lavalin scandal, that the people in the prime minister's office were much more important than the minister involved. And we also saw that in the uh, sexual misconduct scandals around the Defense Department. What did the Minister of Defense do? He said, oh, I don't want to hear about it. And he ran off to the Prime Minister's office and passed the ball to them. You know, mandate letters now come out for the ministers. They've probably already been issued. And I've read them in the past. Uh, They always say, stay away from conflict of interest. And we've seen that the Prime Minister's had many conflicts of interest. But... uh, those mandate letters don't say, come running to me with the problem. But that's actually what the directions are. And one of the reasons this has happened is because once upon a time, ministers selected their own staffs and they had big input into who their deputy ministers would be. What has evolved over the past 20 years or so, we now have something called chiefs of staff. We just used to have an executive assistant. We still have those. But the chiefs of staff are appointed by the prime minister's office. And that's who they report to. And their job is to keep their eye on the minister and and deliver on the prime minister's agenda rather than on the minister's wishes, although often they're congruent. You know, uh, we we talked about regional representation. And when you look at this cabinet, one quarter, full 25% of the positions go to Quebec. What's that tell you? that a quarter of the positions are from Quebec. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, Quebec makes up 22, 23% of the country. And also uh, Trudeau's base is in Quebec. And uh, without Quebec, uh, I don't think they would have even won a minority government. So uh, I don't attribute that much to it. You know, there have been complaints by people like Lloyd Axworthy about underrepresentation from the prairies. But then, you know, they 
how many seats do they win there? They don't have any in Saskatchewan. They've only won two in Alberta. One of the MPs that got elected sort of been discredited. In fact, there's an investigation into whether he broke uh, the law about taking somebody else's sign. Uh, Manitoba doesn't have many seats. So they only get one cabinet minister, although I think there are at least three or four MPs from there. Uh, so I don't attribute much to that. I think the Maritimes did well, but I'm not sure it matters. Again, it, it really comes, uh, think about the last cabinet. I noticed uh, on, on election night when a number of ministers got defeated, I rarely heard about those ministers in the past. And they didn't seem to me terribly significant. And here, let me give you, I think, the ideal example here. At foreign affairs, which used to be called external affairs, used to be a, a very highly prestigious position. In the last five, six years, we've had five different ministers of foreign affairs. What does that tell me? It tells me, to begin with, that other countries can't take our foreign affairs minister seriously. You meet the uh, Canada's foreign affairs minister, you, you look at your clock and you've got a new minister you're dealing with. What kind of relationship are you developing? It, it's also telling me that foreign affairs is essentially driven out of the prime minister's office. And I should say until 1946, the prime minister was the minister for external affairs. And for a long time after that, if you became the Minister of External Affairs, now called Foreign Affairs, that was a senior position in which you stayed in that position. You, you weren't shuffled out. Now, ooh, you know, I, I try to remember all the foreign ministers we've had. And uh, it's interesting that Mark Garneau has been dumped from the cabinet. Now, maybe, maybe it's because he doesn't want to be there, but I doubt it. Uh, and maybe Trudeau just doesn't want him, but is offering him an ambassadorship, which is what he did with uh, Stefan Dion. And maybe that'll happen. Or, or this liberal government under uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't care about the older guard in the liberal party. They've washed their hands of people like Jean Chrétien, Eric Goldenberg, uh, you know, the, the people from the past. And, uh, uh, to them, maybe Garneau is a, is a holdover. And it's interesting because had had Trudeau not run for the liberal leadership in 2013, I suspect Mark Garneau would have run and he could have very well been prime minister today. Where is he? He's out on his bum. Nelson, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Nelson Wiseman's the director of Canadian Studies as well as professor of political science at the University of Toronto. There were a number of eyebrows lifted when this cabinet was announced, whether it's a reward for a job well done or blind loyalty. We'll take a look at a few with Laurie Turnbull, director at the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, and Laurie Melanie Jolie in Foreign Affairs. She was not strong in tourism, heritage, or official languages. What is she going to bring to the table in dealing with the U.S. and China? Yeah, uh, she... If there was one surprise appointment in the cabinet, I think it was probably this one. I think people were surprised to see her move to that portfolio. Um, and as, as you say, she had some struggles in the other portfolios that she's held up until now, but clearly uh, the prime minister has some trust in her. I think um, 
I wouldn't be surprised actually if we saw him very close to this file. And I don't say that in a way that I'm intending to undermine her or suggest that she's not up to it because I firmly believe in people learning and you know what, like, let, let's see what she can do with it. Obviously, um, she's beautifully bilingual. Obviously, she um, has a lot of experience at this point, and she's had lots of files to learn from. I think the rotating door of foreign affairs ministers is drawing some concern, particularly from people who spend a lot of time thinking about this, and that it could possibly cause destabilization in the department uh, on the files themselves. But we will, we will see. Very challenging in terms of Canada's relationship with the U.S., with China, um, how we're going to dig in on the climate change side. Yeah. Anita Anand, uh, very strong in procurement for vaccines during the pandemic, and she gets the tough portfolio of defense. You know, and a former decorated soldier unable to change the culture there. Are the fresh eyes and the distance from the military needed to clean it up? Possibly. I mean, I think she, yeah, I mean, unlike Sajin, she is definitely not, um, she, you know, she, she has no context herself in the military organization. And as she points out, she's a lawyer. Uh, she's clearly somebody who can set, you know, set, set out a path, set out a strategy and then get stuff done. And so I can certainly see the wisdom of the appointments here. I also think she's a very strong communicator. And this is a difficult file to communicate on because you're really talking about organizational change, about an organization that is very inward looking and tends not to want to look outward or, or you know, be accountable outward at all. And so sometimes even trying to explain what's going on is a really, really difficult thing. And so because she's such a clear communicator, I think she's got a leg up in the file. And for sure, like, like she's coming at it as an outsider. She's looking at the problems that, she, that we are all, I, I mean, unfortunately, far too familiar with the types of power issues and um, I guess, dysfunctional relationships and toxicity that exist in the military, they exist all over the place. So yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how a civilian goes at it from the perspective of, of trying to deal with what's going on in the military. Uh, Stephen Wilbo, an environment, and mm -hmm. you know, that did not play well in Alberta. Uh, oh, yeah. Do you expect it's going to continue to not play well in Alberta? Oh, definitely. This is a very useful to Jason Kenney to try to make the argument that the prime minister is making an appointment that's detrimental to national unity, to the oil and gas industry. I mean, it, I think it's too early to tell what this appointment means. It's interesting to me that not only did he appoint uh, Gilbo to environment, but he also moved Wilkinson, the former environment minister, into natural resources. So there is an environmental climate change team here. It's not just about any single minister or any single portfolio. It, I mean, Gilbo himself is, regardless of what his history is and what his personal preferences are, um, no minister is able to pull the cabinet in a way that the cabinet doesn't want to go, right? I guess maybe unless that's the prime minister, but that's a whole different thing. Mm. The fact that Gilbo has strong feelings and strong, not just strong feelings, it's, he has a personal, deep personal and professional commitment on this file. He's, it depends on whether this is a sign from the prime minister that his appointment means that the government is turning in a different direction. And it could mean that. It's just too early to tell. But the idea that, you know, Gilbo is going to go in and somehow change the oil and gas industry on his own is, is not, not going to happen. Now, we've talked about some uh, faces that are in. Let's talk about one that's out. Mark Garneau, uh, former Minister of Foreign Affairs. And a lot of people surprised that uh, an elder statesman would be bounced out of cabinet. What do you think? Yeah, I wonder if it, like, I guess I didn't necessarily see it 
automatically as a bounce out. It's possible that it's going to be something else for him. And so perhaps going from his previous portfolio in foreign affairs, does it make sense for him to step in, into a diplomatic post? And again, kind of too early to tell there. But the other thing is, like, if the prime minister is going to make a gender balanced cabinet and he's going to cover off the types of things that he has to cover off, and he's going to have some people coming in from the newly elected crowd, somebody had to step aside, right? Like, so, you know, you, he can't just keep growing, you know, a bigger cabinet, even though it is bigger this time, you start to get a bit out of control in terms of numbers if you're keeping everybody and then adding new people in. And so I think there had to be a few faces that didn't come back around and Garnell was one. Yeah, you know, we've talked about faces, but uh, portfolios, the middle class prosperity uh, portfolio is gone. What message does that send to, to Canadians? I don't know that it sends a particularly critical one in terms of a shift in anything the government's really doing, or maybe it does. Again, too early to tell. I, I often saw that middle class appointment, um, that portfolio was more of a political signal than anything else. It was about the government being able to put something up there on the cabinet, you know, on the cabinet roster that was a pledge to its commitment to growing the middle class. But that was pre-COVID. I don't think the government has abandoned its commitment to growing the middle class, but I think the messaging now is more about climate change, reconciliation. And so while that goal remains there, I think they're expressing it differently. And so we'll see whether an expression around growing the middle class, how does that affect your housing policy? How does it affect your long-term care policy? Because that's, I think, when you really talk about what does it mean to be middle class? Yeah, that's fine to put, you know, a kind of middle class up there and, you know, to float around. But how does that affect the operation of policy? Laurie, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, too. Thanks for having me on. Laurie Turnbull is the director at the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. When it comes to devising a federal cabinet, regional distribution is a key consideration. Tasha Carradine Ket- is a public policy analyst and political political commentator, and she joins us now. And Tasha, you feel the size of this cabinet indicates this is about big government. How so? Uh, yes, well, it's not just the size, but the way that um, the cabinet seats were allocated. You've got some players uh, like Christian Freeland, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, who are in key positions economically, both finance and industry, which we know is, um, you know, the the, the focus, I think, of this government going forward on affordability, Christian Freeland being a, a very progressive liberal. Um, you also have uh, economic development ministries in all other regions of the country, each of them getting their own ministry, including, interestingly, Harjit Sajjan, still in cabinet. We can talk about that, too. Oh, we will. Um, yeah. Um, and also a new ministry of housing, Ahmed Hassan, who also very progressive minister. A lot of money going to be flowing out the door there. I think this it speaks to the idea of both interventionism on the government and also consolidating political gain and looking toward the next election, which for minority government, you know, if they're there for a couple of years, that's that's usually pretty long. So, uh, But, you know, when Stephen Harper was around, he was not about big government, but his cabinet was pretty well the same size. Yeah, it's not so much the size. I mean, 38 um, ministers in this one. It's more to me um, the the way that they've they've who they've put where. I mean, there's been, of course, always the issue of gender parity that that was affecting a lot of Trudeau's choices too. But you see a lot of attention being paid to Quebec in this cabinet and not simply, you know, the number of seats, but you've got some big players like Melanie Jolie, um, who's got uh, foreign uh, affairs. You've got uh, Champagne, as I mentioned. Um, You have um, uh, in health, you have, uh, and his name's escaping me now, of course, as I'm (laughs) 
as I'm oh, sitting Johnny, here. Johnny, too close. Johnny, too close. close. Thank there you very you much. That's going to be a big focus as well. Um, so you've got some heavy hitters in the cabinet from there. Um, and uh, you also have women in big positions of power. Of course, Anita and Anna Defense, um, Christopher Freeland at Finance, and uh, the aforementioned Jolie, sort of a trifecta of, of ministries that are seen as frontline ministries. Um, so Trudeau's really playing politically to a lot of groups, I think, that he really wants to to make sure are on side next time around. Um, but again, also, he's, he's got it. You also have to look at who's not there. You know, um, Garno uh, is is out. Uh, you've also got Jim Carr, who's out Two considered blue liberals. So, again, the blue liberal wing of the party is grumbling a bit, apparently, because they feel that they haven't really been represented in this new cabinet. Now, you, you had brought up Quebec and the province gets one quarter of the portfolios. The north is shut out and that's not going to play very well in Alberta, is it? No, I mean, Alberta, Alberta is, is not also happy about Stephen Gilbo, another Quebecer uh, who's got the environment ministry. Um, Mr. Wilkinson goes to resources and sort of this, this combination is seen as a bit of a stick in the eye to Jason Kenney, uh, who's already complained about it. Um, says, you know, this is a clearly a very progressive view. And I'm not surprised considering COP26 is coming up and Trudeau wants to have a strong presence there, a strong delegation, a send a strong message. But you also have Randy Boissonneau. Um, who uh, got a uh, cabinet seat for tourism, which is now his own standalone ministry as well. And um, I think that's partly uh, a nod to um, the victory also of Amarjeet Sohi as mayor of Edmonton. I think the liberals are looking and they're looking at the changing demographics also of Edmonton and also Calgary, um, but more Edmonton and saying, hey, maybe some opportunity for us next time around here too. Tide's turning against Jason Kenney provincially. A lot of people don't think he'll be premier next time. So they may want to capitalize on that. Uh, you brought up uh, Randy Boissonneau at, at tourism, and obviously he lost in 2019, came back and, and won in 2021. Mm-hmm. Getting uh, getting an Albertan is a standalone ministry. Uh, does that placate Alberta at all? Um, maybe the thinking is that it will balance out the Gilbo Wilkinson situation. Uh, I'm not sure if it will, but I think it plays to a different constituency. I think the, the Liberals think that there is a um, uh, a constituency, a more progressive constituency in Alberta that they might be able to tap, or a constituency that's that's frustrated with the way the provincial government's performed on COVID. I think a lot of people, and I know a lot of conservatives, were very turned off with the way that it's been handled. Um, and uh, you know that some conservatives may go off to you know whatever other Wexit, you know, say Brexit, but Wexit type uh, initiative comes along. But I think it's the moderates, it's the center rights who would be most apt to be Trudeau's audience here. And they certainly would not go to a protest party of any kind. Yeah, you brought up Stephen Wilbo in uh, an environment, didn't go well in that province. And is that a reflection of his environmental activism in the past or the fact that, well, he couldn't get C-10 completed? Well, I think uh, maybe a bit of both. I think that Gilbo's activism is really the primary thing. I mean, he, you know, he founded, co-founded Ecotair in Quebec. He was, um, he worked for Greenpeace. He's always been pushing the envelope. And in fact, so much so that people said, oh, he won't get the job because he's too far to that, um, to that. And he's gone too far, you know, to stick it in the eye of the the oil companies and the oil patch. Um, I think, I mean, it's Gilbo's dream job. Uh, You know, McKenna was, I will say, I mean, she was very passionate about the ministry. I don't know how uh, incredibly effective she was. She had a lot of detractors. A lot of people, though, who, you know, criticized her for all sorts of uh, 
issues that shouldn't have been an issue, such as her looks and, and her gender. And I mean, she really got, she got slammed on social media for, for issues that should not have been factor, but Gilbo won't get that. Um, but he will get attacked, I think, for the idea that, you know, um, this government's not going to recognize that we do need resource development going forward if we're going to pull ourselves out of the pandemic. And that includes oil and gas. Now, you brought up uh, Harjad Sage and uh, back at the beginning, uh, I'm going to say yeah, him, uh, Patty Haidu and Carolyn Bennett all stay in cabinet, different positions. Mm -hmm. What does that tell you? Well, yeah, there's some continuity, though they were demoted, all of them. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, um, the fact that Duclos goes to health, I mean, I do, uh, it was, the pandemic was not an easy time for any health minister, but I think the sense was that that, that something had to change there. Um, but getting rid of her, again, is the parity issue for, for female cabinet ministers. So Bennett and Haidu are both women. Um, you get rid of them. You have this issue, again, of gender parity. Where do you, who do you put there? I think with, um, with Sajan, it was an issue of regional representation and also um, uh, ethnic or cultural representation. Um, Trudeau's cabinet on that score could be more diverse than it is. You know, there's been quite a few people who've pointed out that Greg Fergus, for example, who is a Black uh, member of parliament for um, a riding in Quebec, very close to the Ontario border, He's he's been an incredible MP. Um, I actually know him personally from high school, believe it or not, debating in Montreal. Um, he's the kind of guy you'd think would be in cabinet, and he's not. Um, so there's some sense that, you know, uh, Trudeau's attempts to balance everything. You can't make everyone, you can't do everything, perhaps, but I think he could have done a bit better. And if, if the idea was representation, I think a, a member like Fergus would have had perhaps more cred than than Sajan, who got into so much trouble at defense, but Sajan is from BC. And so there's that thinking as well, regional representation. It's, it's a very complicated balancing act. Yeah, you brought up the uh, the gender balance and, and why uh, Patty Haidu and Carolyn Bennett, Bennett may still be around. Do you think that pledge has handcuffed the prime minister and his ability to build a cabinet? Well, I, th I personally think that it's, I, I don't think it's necessary to have 50% on the nose, or I think that you should have the best people for the job. And yes, I think that you should strive as much as possible to have representation um, so that people see themselves in cabinet too. It's, it's also very important. I mean, 30% of a Liberal caucus is BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, or people of color, and cabinet's not, um, you know, so I mean, it, you might say why. Um, I think the same for women, though. I don't think they have 50% women in in caucus. I'm not 100% sure on that score. But again, it's, it's sort of, I won't say it's an obsession, but I think if you have 45%, it's probably fine because next time you might have 55% women and 40, you know, striving to, to achieve an arbitrary goal, I think should, can handcuff you. And I think, yes, it does put the position, the prime minister position where he has to make choices that, you know, might arguably may be made on gender as opposed to, um, like you said, you know, fulfilling other types of balances, which aren't there. Tash, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Tasha Carradine is a public policy analyst and political commentator. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, which cabinet minister do you feel will be the first shuffled out of their portfolio? Melanie Jolie in Foreign Affairs, Anita Anand in Defense, Stephen Guilbeau in Environment, Jean-Yves Duclos in Health, Patty Haidu in Indigenous Affairs, or other. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, Nelson Wiseman from the University of Toronto, Lori Turnbull from Dalhousie University, and Tasha Carradine, public, public policy analyst and political commentator. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.